the Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to today's episode. On today's episode, I'd like to welcome Victoria Smurfett. Victoria Smurfett is an actress and producer known for Bulletproof Monk 2003, The Beach 2000 and About a Boy 2002. She's known for playing Orla O'Connell in the BBC television series Ballycast Angel, Detective Chief Inspector Roisin O'Connor in the ITV Police Procedural Trial and Retribution, and playing Cruella de Vil in Once Upon a Time, which she was nominated as Best Supporting Actress in the 13th IFTA Film and Drama Awards in 2016. She is also appearing in the upcoming Irish movie, Deadly Cuts, soon to be released. Victoria Smurfett, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to be in your room with all your guitars and drums and Route 66. I've been up Route 66. Yeah, it, it looks fantastic. I live in Alicante, so this is my kind of music studio in Alicante. And um, I'm from Galway, but I've been living in Madrid for the last eight years. So, But recently I moved to Alicante. I wanted to get back to the coast again. So for me, I wanted to be beside the sea. I miss Galway and I miss Salt Hill and I miss the beach. So I said, okay, Alicante is the next step. Love it. Oh, it's well for some. That sounds, because I was going to say, you don't sound like you're from Alicante. (laughs) No, no, I don't sound like I'm from Alicante. Do you have to bring subtitles? I speak Spanish. So when I speak Spanish, uh, my wife says, you still obviously have a different accent. But, you know, I'm never going to sound like the, you know, the Manuel or anything. So for me, my accent is my accent, you know. But no, I slow it down. I slow it down a little for them. Oh, well done. I always say when, when people over, because I'm in London, that if, uh, um, if anybody says, uh, oh my gosh, I really like your accent. I'm like, well, to me, you've got the accent, but I suppose I'm in your country. So, you know, okay. Uh- <laughs> of, of course, you know, the received pronunciation and the Queen's accent, you know, Spanish people love that. They're kind of like, so does everybody talk like the Queen in the UK? And I will, I go, well, first of all, I'm from Ireland, which is <laughs> kind of near the UK, but we don't speak like that. But uh, there is a lot of people, you know, in London and Oxford and different places. But there's so many accents in the UK. That's just one of them. Well, just like at home, there's just so many accents. You just go three streets down, that's a different accent. Yeah, it's just it's just how it goes. It's uh well if the if if your your Spanish friends are calling you English, you just call them Portuguese. Go on. Yeah, they don't like that. No. <laughs> they don't like that. So so you're in London now. You have you been back in London long or when did you move back to, to London? Now? Um I came back here um 2 years ago. So when I arrived Simon, I thought, "Oh, we're going to have to deal with Brexit." <laughs> That was the least of the issues. Hey, we can't get the petrol in. They can't get the food in. It's it's really fascinating. Um, but yeah, then of course COVID hit, um, and so uh, I moved house. I was down in. I was living in Surrey when we first came over, and now we've moved up to London, um, and we're we're here for good or bad or evil. And how was that experience? Obviously, living in California because. 
you know, obviously Dublin, London, California, they're all, they're all great cities, but they're all very different culturally. And, you know, obviously, even in the West Coast of America and the East Coast, they're really different. So California is its own animal. And it's a beautiful place to live. But sometimes there's so much yeah. going on and the craziness. People just tend sometimes to want to get out of it after a while. Oh, I, do you know what it is? It's a beautiful place to live. It really genuinely is. And, um, you know, the, the the weather is so perfect. And, you know, the beaches are lovely and the schools are interesting and the people you know culturally it's an extremely different place to both like you like you rightly say it's culturally it's different to the east coast of america it's different to middle america it's different to ireland the uk everybody every sort of place that i've lived has its own um personality and um yeah, it's very positive. It's very upbeat. One of the amazing things about it is the can-do kind of thing. That the, um, you know, you you ask somebody and um, I sort of I, I think of it this way. I've got this theory about England, Ireland, the US. In the US, if you say, "Can I have a cup of coffee?" they go, "Yeah," and people will ask you, "Can I?" Can I have a cup of coffee? Direct, clear, no foofing. In the UK, they go, if at all possible, when you have a moment, I'd really love a cup of coffee, if you don't mind. Thank you so much. In Ireland, we go, that's a great looking cup of coffee you've got there now. Would you like one? Not at all. I wouldn't put you out. Not a bother. No, 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 no. I go on and make a cup of coffee. No, no, no. You sit down there and you enjoy your coffee. Oh, it smells great. Can I make you a coffee? 20 minutes later, you're making a bloody coffee, right? In the UK, a lot of the time, not everybody, obviously, but if you say, hey, could we take that road? No. What about this? No. What about that? No. In the US, they kind of go, yes, ma'am. Yes. You know, uh, they may not do it. And if they don't want to deal with your email, they just don't respond. Uh, whereas we'll at least go, oh, I can't do that for you, but, you know, good luck. Um but in the US, they just literally don't respond like you, you're not there because there's just such a huge amount of people there that, you know, you lose a few along the way. It doesn't matter. Um, so there's less accountability, I think. There's amazing, positive, big sky thinking, open mentality, but there's also less um, community connectivity so that there's no recourse if you're being mean or rude or you're having a bad day you don't have to hide it because who cares whereas uh, um, we live in a community culture and I'm sure it is in Alicante as well when I moved to Spain first you know Spanish people would say oh Irish and Spanish people are very similar we are in some ways that the warm culture and stuff but the con connectivity at yeah. the beginning is different for example in Spain they have a very kind of tight clicky culture so if you're outside the circle you have to be introduced in a way because oh, really? there's this there's this kind of um, Mediterranean paranoia about who is this person, what do they want. Whereas in Ireland, I always say, you know, if my mother's at the airport and she meets someone traveling and they say, oh, I'm going to your village or your town. She's like, oh, you should come for tea. You know, Irish people have this lack of fear. We, yeah, we, we're like, absolutely. someone could say, yeah. but that could be a terrorist or it could be a rapist or a serial killer. And you're like, ah, no, I know, I know. Yeah, but but that's true. Well, that's but that's part of the community thing that we're talking about, because you're you're only ever really 
a couple of degrees, maybe half a degree of separation from somebody. So if somebody was misbehaving, you'd be able to go, Nelly, did you hear what your man over here was doing? You're kidding. I'll sort that out. So we don't, there's not, um, there's not, like I say, in America, that kind of no recourse, no comeback for anything that you've done or thought, which I think to a degree allows on the positive side, people to think much bigger. And on the downside, it's lonelier. You said to me about two years, you're back in the UK. So you kind of just came back to the UK just before COVID, really, no? Um, yes, it was. What are we back now? Yeah, two. Yeah, two years, just over two years. Um, we came back pre-COVID. Um, we were probably, hang on, we were here at the June till, well, COVID didn't really like kick off in a big way until the March, right? probably had about uh eight months of just brexit and settling and schools and um working out you know reconnecting with all your buddies and all that kind of good stuff and then sit in your house and do nothing try not to die like invent a whole new life and take up knitting and do all the things that you should have done you know but you never had the time well you know i think i think it's i, th I think that's really interesting take up knitting like we're all extremely lucky and i you know i say to the kids we're extremely lucky and fortunate that we've come through quite a year and a half of this covid stuff without touch wood having lost anybody um, immediate to, to us. And, um, well, my mum lost her best friend um, to it. Um, but it's, I mean, it, it's been brutal. So, you know, as I think the way we cope with these things is we try and sort of make, is, is make a joke of it. Like I turn, you know, detailing the fish fingers into a gag um, rather than um, get into the weeds of, how bloody scary it was. Like, you know, to have an airborne disease that you have no idea who's carrying it or where it is, um, you know, was was absolutely terrifying. You know, you talk about the terrorists, you wouldn't get in a car with somebody um, is, is, is actually, you know, the real terrorist that's been around has <laughs> been bloody COVID. And it's, it's, but I feel very lucky, touch wood, that so far, so good. Have you been affected by it? Are you all right? Me and my wife did get COVID in the fur in March 2020. Oh, early. And we had like an eight day thing, but but our symptoms weren't as bad, you know, fatigue and that kind of stuff. But we escaped it. And of course, I mean, that was in the initial months of COVID and when it was in Spain. So we were lucky, I think, you know, and it hasn't come to our door since, thank God. Um, so I think, you know, it's one of these things where, I'm kind of in the middle with COVID because, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that it doesn't exist, but I think it's a very radical kind of a pandemic and it's a very radical virus. But, you know, the, the media plays a lot into it and people's fears. I mean, if you never heard of COVID and you went out and you just kept your hands clean and covered yourself, you, you probably wouldn't even know anything about it. You know, before we even go out the door, we have all these fears, especially when you look at the TV stations and the news. So, you know, I heard somebody saying the other day, oh, by, you know, in six months time, it could be looked at as just a common cold now. Who knows? But but I think we just have to get on with our lives. In order for it to become a common cold, there has to be some degree, you know, it's part herd immunity, part, and obviously the vaccinations have been so important. And that's yeah. why 
it's and it's going to keep morphing obviously but uh, that's why we can be more relaxed about the idea of it becoming a common cold because unbelievable scientists and geneticists and biologists i don't even know how many ists went off put their heads down and created various different um vaccines for us and i you know i take my hat off to them because i'm sure they never saw their families for months on end as they they work towards being able to give us this option to be at this point only a year and a half down the line where we're discussing the possibility yes. that it may just be a cold because you know it, uh, the human brain's really interesting you you kind of we've all forgotten very quickly how extraordinarily terrifying it was when all the hospitals were jammed there was not enough oxygen there was not enough icu beds they were putting bodies in swimming pools and ice rinks they were putting them in ice rinks in spain i think they were putting them in in um in in um in you know trenches in new york you know and it's it's very easy to forget that that was very real um because we move on to the next drama and the next drama and then of course within the space where fear lessens then anti-vaxxers can hop in there and trumpets and you know so it just depends on what kind of space is available for whatever the next voice is that's coming at you one thing i wanted to just talk to you about obviously was uh, you know i i came across an article when i was researching you and um you when you were in the states you had an experience with with obviously with your daughter and guns you know and and in the, the you had a gun scare in the school so obviously in England, the problem they have at the moment and they've had for a number of years is obviously stabbings and knife, the amount of young, you know, uh, I don't want we'll say disadvantaged youth carry knives and maybe not disadvantaged. But the thing is, how do you feel that was that experience and, you know, getting that call and that scare that made you think, oh, my God, like, I love this country, but I can't handle this kind of gun control. It's going to scare me all my life well there's 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 a few bits to that so uh we didn't leave america because of the guns it was just one of um the children at school in the u.s have to do well certainly in california they have to do earthquake drills so they have to learn what to do when you know the world starts doing this uh they also have to do lockdown drills which is what to do if somebody is at the school, in the school, um, with a firearm. And there's a whole series of procedures that they have to do, the doors locked, blah, 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 blah. Um, And they've been doing those since since they started school over there. Um, And, but there was one time where I was uh, about an hour and a half away, uh, literally about to go on set. And I got a call from Evie saying, uh, we're in a lockdown and it's real. Um, and that was, that was terrifying. That was absolutely terrifying. Um, luckily everything turned out fine. Um, it was disgruntled kid from a, from an older class. And actually because of the awareness, I guess, though, uh, you know, how they deal with it in the U S the kid who got the text message saying, I'm coming to shoot you all took it seriously and took it to the, the principal and said, mm, not a good text. 
And so they did lock it down. And so the kid never got in. He was found and picked up by the police and heavy. But there was a series of things, you know, at, su- at some point, I think culturally, um, the bottom line, oh, there were so many reasons why we came back. One, we'd spent, you know, eight years there and the kids had grown up. I wasn't, you know, within in sun and freedom and, uh, you know, really lovely. Um, I was pursuing my career there. So was my then husband. And it was all going really nicely. And then it gets to the point where you actually start really missing the core of what makes you you. And I mean that as a collective, as a family, you know. Um, We missed my, you know, my parents are getting older. Um, the, being able to to connect with family was um, was something we really missed. Evie with her eyesight situation, she's got Stargardt's macular dystrophy. She would never be able to drive. You can't do anything in LA if you can't drive a car. Um, so it was about getting back to community, getting back to um, what we know, love and understand and missed. And also being able to give um, like an independent life for um, my children, particularly Evie. And also, I didn't know if I wanted to raise Los Angelian teenagers. Um, and they are Irish and they've grown up in America and we've got lots of British family. So it was like, well, we might as well all be international um, men and women in mystery. And so that's kind of what they are. You know, I think that with my kids as well. My two, My daughter is 10, nearly 11, and my boy is eight. And, you know, they've been here nearly all of their life. My my little boy came here when he was two months old. So he's very uh-huh. Irish when you meet him. But then when you see him out playing with his friends, he's very Spanish. So it's funny because that home environment, you can say, oh, it's like a little piece of Ireland. And, you know, they have their little accents and so on. But then when you see them out in their, that their own kind of native playing with their friends and everything. You're like, wow, that's how they're different. So there's a real kind of united colors of Bennett and multicultural thing going on. Yeah, it's great, though, isn't it? I mean, it's it's really great for them. It's great to have, uh, you know, you know, a mad perspective of different cultures. I think it's fantastic. I love it. I love it. Let's go back in time a little bit, obviously, because, you know, I want to kind of get deeper into your how you got into acting and, you know, your life kind of as a teenager. So so you were obviously, you were born in, in Dublin. And, you know, when you were born, did you feel kind of then, because obviously your family were well known, you know, for, for, for business and everything. Did you feel as you grew up then that you wanted to follow that line? Or did you feel like, oh, you know, maybe through connections, there's work in this thing for me? Or did you feel, no, I want to do my own thing. You know, I'm, I'm part of this family, but I'm different. How was your kind of scope towards that kind of thing? Um, well, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't think the family business would have had me in it. Um, I think, um, you know, it was pretty obvious from um, a pretty young age that I was going to do something bananas. But um, there's part of me that wished I'd followed the business track. Um, and there's, there's, mm, but no, I was never really going to join the firm. The um, and my parents were very keen that you find out what you know that both myself and my brother worked out what we wanted to do um and we did it took me a while to work it out and then 
um, it became um, clear. And um, so, no, there was never any pressure. You know, it was like, you know, find what makes you tick. Um, because just because you can come from a, fa- a, a circus family but have no skills with ponies and um, clowns, you, you know, you just... I didn't have this, you know, I didn't have the skill set and neither did I have the desire to get the skill set to be able to be part of, um, to be able to be part of the, the, the family business. When you were, you know, let's say seven and eight, were you one of these children who thought, I want to be a singer, I want to be an actor or, you know, did, did you find that you were creative in different ways? No, not then. No, no, I'm terrible at art. My singing voice is atrocious um uh i just i wanted to be an ice skater i wanted to be a cheerleader i wanted to be a taxi driver i wanted to be a fireman i wanted to be a nurse i wanted to be a doctor i wanted to be a tree i I just wanted to be everything um um and so it's sort of kind of then worked out that okay well maybe you want to be an actor maybe you just don't want to live being you (laughs) the best actors and actresses kind of sometimes they can be all these different people because you know and deep down for a lot of people you can be a walter mitty type character whereas you're in the clouds or you know there's lots of kids who are daydreaming now in class at this moment and they're thinking of being pilots or being other things and hopefully one day they will achieve that dream. But the great thing now about life is we allow our kids to dream much more than we did in the past. I think I think it's been, you know, I think there's enough evidence out there to say if you're too prescriptive, it doesn't really work out. So and listen, there and there's too much of it. Like I'm all for boundaries for kids. Let me tell you, I'm all for it. Um, um, but, you know, I don't think one person can tell another person oh, well, this is what you should do or who you should be. You kind of have to do that work yourself, right? Um, and I was lucky. I auditioned for, gosh, I auditioned for tons of drama schools and Bristol Ulvik took me in. And then um, I've been working my butt off since, I think is what they say. When you were a teenager, you know, did you have lots of hobbies or did you kind of focus only on the acting and into that world or you know like you said you wanted to be an ice skater did you find yourself delving into different sports or different activities trying to find that thing um i'd try any sport handed to me um i'd give anything a go uh for sure i i'm uh yeah i mean i've tried all sorts of mad things um which i love not great with heights not brilliant with heights but um, but yeah, no, I'll, I, that's why. And a lot of the times if, um, uh, if I'm hired to do more of a physical role, I love it because you're learning how to manage gherkin knives and, um, uh, abseiling off cliff faces and disappearing off in helicopters and learning how to hang out without being terrified. And, you know, I love all that. I love, I love the, 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 the process of learning. Um, a new skill set and sometimes as an actress that new skill set is how to navigate um, a forest floor with high heels and a fur coat you just you know there's just all sorts of things that I love the cross between the mentally emotional and the physical and having to work out (laughs) functions Um, but how it functions as a character not how not what what's going on in my head because a couple of times I've had to 
abseil down things and in my I'm walking up to it going oh my god I'm going to die uh, but then you get there and you're in character and you're like boom <laughs> so you know you just um you flick that switch yeah in a weird sort of way in a weird sort of way yeah so so when you you said you mentioned there you went to the Bristol the old Vic and when you were there you know did you think to yourself oh I want to focus more on theater or I want to be a TV or film actress. Did you have kind of goals or was it just, I'm open to everything? Uh, no, there wasn't. Um, I'm sure they do an awful lot of it more now. Be, I mean, they'd be mad not to, but I'm sure they do. But um, back um, in the year 2000 and dot or whenever, or like, uh, you know, um, when I went, which was the nineties, um, you did like two days of uh, theater art camera management where they gave you a camera and you had to learn how to suddenly become smaller. So it was only it was only theater we were trained in, really. Um, and then you learn on the job. The best way to learn is on the job. Listen, watch, listen, watch, shut up, ask questions, listen, watch, shut up, watch. I suppose many actors will say, you know, my first love is theatre, my first love is this particular genre or whatever. So did you find that you, after a while of doing it, you know, when, for example, in 1995, you did the run of the country, and when you started getting more into TV and film and everything, did you think, wow, I, I like this more than theatre, or did you always say, I want to go between the two? Um, I, I, I don't think I had the luxury of using the word want. Um, I think it was more a case of what comes to you. Um, and um, what came to me was predominantly TV and um, a few films. So you duck and dive and morph to where the work is. You know, at no point have I sat back and going, I want to be, I want, I want this. Because it doesn't, <laughs> I mean, you can do it. Um, but it's more a case of what comes to you. You have the luxury, you have the luxury of saying no to things rather than have having the luxury of saying, I want to work with Spielberg tomorrow. Um, if you see what I mean in terms of how that works. So, so, um, I, I, I took the jobs that I loved that were available that wanted me. So, um, some was, uh, film. I love TV because I love the speed of TV. Um, I love how quickly it it, um, it it bounces, whereas film, certainly the big films, um, there's an awful lot more uh, sit down and wait time and air time. So, um, I yeah, it, TV suits me. I love theatre. I haven't done theatre in years because I went off and had lots of children. Um, and uh, uh, I haven't been asked. It's 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 that simple. It's really that simple. You know, you follow a path and whatever comes along that path, you take it. And, you know, you've been very busy and you've had lots of roles. And even looking through all your your archive of work you've done, it's a really great like body of work at this stage. You're not done yet, but I mean, it's really great. And uh, I mean, obviously, for an actor, do you, is it hard sometimes when you have a big role and then, you know, that finishes and then you're kind of left 
hanging for a while where you might get smaller roles, but you're, you know, is that hard to take in? No, um, it's just the nature of the beast. Um, but it is an awful lot harder. I'm doing a, a TV show at the moment where I drop in for a day and I drop in for a day. And it's a lot harder to drop in for a day than it is to be on set all day, every day, because you get into the groove and, and the memory muscles work and then your bodies work and you're just, um, you're just, you're at work, but you're at home. Um, and when you're dropping in for a day, like uh, the day player work is so much harder because every day is the first day at school. Um, so I always, you know, when, when I was doing trial and retribution, um, years ago, um, whenever you'd get sorry, my hair's all over the place. Um, whenever you get somebody coming in for a couple of days, you'd really want to take care of them because you know how scary it is. It's so much scarier than, you know, if you're there plugging away every day. When in '98, when when you got onto Ballycast Angel, and obviously, you know, at the time, I remember Ballycast Angel, and it was a great show. But it was there was a lot of pressure on it, and a little bit. Well, in my opinion, I mean, maybe I'm totally wrong, in the sense that in Ireland it kind of was perceived like a new Glen Rowe, if you know what I mean. Like it had that kind of vibe and um, like Glen Rowe was obviously the Sunday night thing where people loved it and tuned in and, and it was the, you know, the famous line, oh fuck, forgot to do my homework, you know, came from Glen Rowe, 8.30, oh shit. So for me, when, when Glen Rowe finished, obviously, and I think it, it finished long before it, but Ballykiss Angel, for me, was like this really good successor to it. So it came along and obviously it was a, a BBC, wasn't it, drama, but very focused on Ireland. And um, so did you did the cast or the people on that feel that that was similar to Glen Rowe in some ways? I don't know. You'd have to ask them. I mean, I certainly didn't. I think it was it was more a case of um, how fantastic it was to have um, another show on air that became like a water cooler TV back when you had water cooler TV. You know, sort of 10, 12 million people on a Sunday night would sit down and wait for the theme tune. So that that's pretty huge. You don't get that anymore. Like if you if you have three million people watching what you're making, in any given moment, that's that's really good numbers because obviously we've got a much broader platform and a much broader um, industry. Um, but back then, when you had RT One, RT Two, BBC One, BBC Two, Channel Four, that you know ITV, UTV, that you know those were your your only options. So you didn't have um, uh, the choices. But I mean, certainly. Uh, um, Bally Kay kept the Irish film and TV industry absolutely going in such a fantastic way. I mean, so many of our actors, directors, producers got hired, um, our, you know, our grips, our sparks, they, uh, you know, it was, and it was good, solid, continual work. It was, it was, uh, um, it was extremely important for the, the country and the industry at the time, I think, but I didn't feel going on to it. Um, I was very nervous auditioning and very nervous going through all the different uh, things because it was such a big show. And then to get cast, and it was like, whoa. Um, and, you you know, you'd get the buses from America, from Canada, from England that would arrive in Avoca. And, um, uh, and they, you know, they'd, they'd see Quigley over there and 
and, 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 and Frankie over there and they're, and they were, oh my God, oh my God. And they just walk straight into a scene, completely oblivious in their orange cagoules. And you're like, kind of shooting right now, but okay. <laughs> so it was, um, it was, yeah, it was a funny one. It was, it was a, a gorgeous thing to be part of, really was. It was one of those iconic shows. And, it, and like what was interesting, obviously, Glen Rowe was an Irish production and then Ballycath Angel was a BBC, but filmed in Ireland with Irish crew and everything. So it was interesting, yeah. obviously, the take, the two different perspectives of Irish life, you know, because when you looked at the RTE productions, there kind of were less money. There was less spent on them. But when you looked at Ballycath Angel, you could see it was a bigger production. Yes. And there was there's more there was more whimsy to it. So to me, it was more what I call the, the, the sort of the traveling Irish shows. So when you give it a little bit a height of whimsy or a height of drama or a height of whatever, then it can travel to the States like. I've been stopped in Fifth Avenue for being Orla from Bally Angel, you know, in New York, because Bally K traveled. It just it it was travel because it was it was good heart TV, you know. Um, but it 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 took the best of the Irish, and I think it was BBC Northern Ireland actually that that that. So it was, you know, a triumvirate, which is great. It was it was a um, yeah, it was a fun. It was it was a fantastic, great advert for for us across the world, you know. The thing is, I think what what didn't happen in Glen Row that happened in Ballycath Angel was they they utilized the beautiful scenery and the beautiful village of Avoca. And, you know, in one way, it could have been a tourism Ireland advert at times because it was so beautiful. And Glen Row obviously was, you know, more farmland, but it was still in beautiful area. But they didn't capitalize on the area around them. It was more about the the, you, the shots were nearly always like with Dinny or Miley on the farm or in the local. It wasn't. Avoca appeared more, much more in Ballycast Angel, didn't it? It did. Well, it's 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 as simple as Glenrow was an Irish show made for the Irish, and Ballycay was an Irish show made for anybody who wanted to watch it. It was more universal. I think so. Roles, you know, obviously, I mean, you've had so many roles and we'll talk about your, I I think it's your latest role in Deadly Cuts. I think that's your your latest one coming out. That's coming out on the 6th of October. Um, Yeah, I'm filming one show at the moment. I've got another one coming up. But at the moment, the next thing to come out is Deadly Cuts with Angeline Ball and Erica Rowe. It's great fun. Um, It looks great. uh, It's gas uh, i mean i just turn up because when i read the script and because I'm, I'm i'm like the baddie i'm the antagonist and it's just so fun and couldn't be more irish and it's but hilarious it's really fun it's really worth a watch seen obviously from some of your posts of you know over the last few months and i was thinking this looks interesting you know and we haven't had enough of these kind of comedies coming out of ireland and the uk in in a while there's are or, or we did, but they weren't great standard. Um, so this looks really interesting. And the other day I was watching the trailer and I thought, wow, this could actually be a really good movie. Um, and I mean, you know, for you, you're the baddie in this. Do you find that from some roles you've done, like the Cruella de Vil and some roles like this, do you find then that sometimes now they go, oh, we want you, they want you to be the villain in this, or is it is it hard not to be stereotyped? I do, t- I, I do tend to get the um, the baddie roles. Um, not always. Um, I, I, I was filming um, 80 Days Around the World, 
um, the the there's a new Phileas Fogg um, that I think is going to be on the BBC um, that's coming out. I did an episode of that, and I didn't play a baddie. I'll have you know. Anyways, but yes, I do. I do tend to um, to, to to get the bad girl roles, which frankly are so much fun. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, I do. I do. I, but I enjoy them. They're great. Fun. Yeah, I can imagine they're great fun. But I mean, you've had some great roles with the trial and retribution and the DCI Russian O'Connor. That was for what, f- f- four or five se- series seasons, no? Yeah, I did that for seven years. Yeah. yeah. So that was that was quite good. And, you know, that's a, a, a different character entirely. So, I mean, I'm, I was watching um, a TV show at the moment, um, Vigil. I don't know if you've seen that one. About the, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, no. and it's a British one with like oh, what's I can't think of her name. Um, Saran Jones. Saran Jones, yes, and it's quite it's quite a good show. Um, obviously on a submarine and the British Navy, but it's a good show. So the um, it's funny when you see sometimes, like I think Saran Jones started out in Coronation Street, didn't she? Yeah, she did. So yeah. so the thing is, it's hard sometimes when you're in those soaps and you know actors from fair city and all those brookside and Carnage street it's hard to go further sometimes because you might be a little stereotyped so you know it's great to see an actress like her going on further and doing different roles she's brilliant she's doing brilliantly she's brilliant yeah there's but there's a lot of listen let me tell you um when you're working on soaps you are trained to within an inch of your life because you don't get any time. You have to pull out the most astonishing moments, um, emotions and do these incredible turns. You've got to learn a hell ton of dialogue very, very quickly. Like you're that's a it's a brilliant training ground. It's not easy. Being a soap actor is not easy at all. So I'm always I'm always madly in awe of the soap actors because they just like bang. <laughs> so, you know. They're brilliant, really brilliant. And f- because now you've moved back to the UK, has that changed the um, the kind of roles that you've been getting? Because or or have you been traveling more to do roles in America? Uh, no, I've 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 kind of um, uh, I, I get a lot of auditions in to you know move to Atlanta for seven months. I'm like I can't. I'm not. You know, I've moved back here. The kids are settled here. Everybody's um can you know content and happy and so uh um i'm not at the moment i'm kind of hedging away from anything in the u.s and over that side of the world just to be able to and i can you know I, and also i love like i love the drama and the stories that we make here so um yeah no i'm kind of i'm i'm more um i listen to american productions shooting in london that's my bag uh which is one that i'm doing right now and um but yeah no i don't want to i don't want to disappear on them while they're you know they're my kids are now coming up for 17 14 and um nearly 13 um so that you know they have different different needs but i'm not going to i'm not going to go back to la i just left (laughs) and obviously even though things have opened up a little more as regards you know film sets and everything with after covid you still have to go through the whole process of testing and flying and it's it's way more complicated than before so 
it's not like, you know, in the past, people used to get commuter flights between Dublin and London, film for four or five days, go back to Dublin. And yeah. one of your previous co-stars, Jonathan Reese Myers, and I was reading his thing about, you know, relocating from London to Dublin and so on. So for actors, as you evolve and as you mature, you kind of want to be where you're happy to, doesn't it? Like you have to be in a place where you feel content and you're with your family. You're not just there for the job. Uh, yeah, you do have to build in more more time now with this, with COVID. You absolutely do. But, you know, it's standard. I mean, having said that, you know, February, I flew to South Africa, to Cape Town to film 80 Days Around the World. Um, and you drop and roll and you just get done what you've got to do. You have, you know, getting swabbed every few hours, you get swabbed every few hours. You just get on with it. I feel for, um, I think we should all have gone into testing, uh, the testing industry to make uh, all the money. But it was, it's just, it's just how it is right now. It won't forever be, but right now it will be, you know, to go back to the beginning of this, here's hoping that it does turn into a cold. Um, we, We were talking earlier. One of the things you were talking about earlier about new skills. So obviously, with every new role you do and you, you, you know, learning sword fighting, burka knives, backflips. So talk to us a little about that, because obviously I've had some guests on the show and I have a martial arts background myself. I trained for martial arts for years. Oh, good so man. it's interesting, you know, when you see actors and actresses who arrive on the set or, you know, arrive with pre-production and they have to learn all these new skills and of course, there's great choreographers and everything, but sometimes you have to do the stunts yourself and you have to learn the moves and everything. Tell us about some of that process when you start doing that. Well, you just get on with it. You know, you tend to, if you're lucky, you get some rehearsal and you get to work out, you know, because sometimes sometimes you're doing a fight scene with a stunt guy and sometimes you're doing a fight scene with another actor. And that's a very different thing because a stunt guy will adjust, you know, and um, and sell it and teach you and, and almost kind of help you remember where you're going um and you rehearse like a dance and then when you go in you've got to then learn how to do it in your costume and your heels and um the furs and the you know the 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 lights and the set um and then you just do this and then you go you know are, are um, you one of these people who you know will like go to a class where you have to learn with the stunt people or choreographers and then go home and work on it a lot or do you kind of say no no i i picked this up really easy no i like to i prefer to know because uh, you know fight scenes are it's a dance so i prefer to um have it so that you can go home and in your hotel room going stab parry swing you know, so that you can, it can lock in because you want to know that it's fully locked in so that you can forget about it because then you've got to do the dialogue and then you've got to do the acting. And then, you know, so, um, yeah, you need, you need the move set so that you're not thinking, do I stab him in the eye next or the knee? <laughs> Can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and yeah. <laughs> It's what you know when when we used to look at pop stars on the stage like Britney Spears and they'd be doing these like tricky dance moves and singing, you know, and then you, people say, oh, that's really difficult to dance and to sing at the same time, whether they were miming or not. But one thing you said there, which was interesting, you could have done a really exhilarating fight scene. Now, maybe they cut that. That's its own scene. But I'm sure sometimes it's you have to remember all the lines or the dialogue before. 
if they're trying to roll it in one take and then you have to do a fight scene and then go into heavy dialogue can that be tricky um yeah in, usually you don't go straight into a fight it's only if the dialogue is through the fight um that you you have to deal with that um but you'll they'll get stunt stunt coordinators are incredible they'll kind of they'll give you chunks um but you know you're right sometimes the camera move is say all the way down the train and you've got to bunk off a whole load of vampires you've got to get it done and um yeah it's a jigsaw puzzle but you know have you yeah. ever been injured like training for these fight scenes or stunt scenes i've torn a rotator cuff um i messed up a hamstring um oh yeah oh yeah i've done all sorts but just get on with it you just get you just do it but yeah just go um yeah but oh yeah you do all all sorts of sometimes you'll go back to the hotel room and you'll go my knee is twice the size cool <laughs> i sort of just think of it as all, all look at my bruises yeah <laughs> You're, I'm an idiot. You're you're in the shop with your bags, and people are saying, "Oh, look at her bruises and her arms." You go, "Yeah, that's a tough." Fight. Yeah, I did a I did a show called Strike Back, and I had a um, AK-47, and we did a lot of training with a military advisor called Paul Bittis, who who um, trained us up on all the um, the, the uh, artillery, and it was you were a DEA agent, weren't yes, you? Yes, yes, I was, and so we were do we were yes. doing that, and it's in. Malaysia, it's 100 degrees, 100, 100% humidity, it's hot as hell. You've got fires going off, bombs going off, all sorts. And you're you're navigating your, because you'd use, um, uh, um, they weren't real, but they were blanks. And they're obviously, but you'd use blanks. So you'd have to be very careful to make sure that you had the right distance so that you didn't, because I'm sure you've heard of actors getting damaged and hurt uh, on set, getting too close to blanks. So you'd have to be very careful. You're aiming for the body, but the focus puller is in front of you. So you have to adjust where you're doing. But one time um, I was popping off around and it blew out of the chamber this way instead of that way. Because they normally they pop that way out of the gun. It flew this way and hit me in the eyeball. But we're in the middle of a take and it's just like bang. And it was hard. Um, and we just kept going on my eye just went Vroom. I said did you get it on camera that would be so cool <laughs> I was only interested in did you get it on that camera that can be a, a that can be a heavy wound for later yeah oh okay you know? but it was um, uh, but it was yeah so you never quite know you have to be careful but you have to be okay with that the odd scratch and bump just tell us about you know upcoming projects or whatever that you can tell us about you know um, you obviously have deadly cuts you've spoken of that yeah, Deadly Cuts is coming out the 6th of October and I'm getting to come over. I'm going to do all that PCRing and come over to Dublin for the premiere for that, which I'm very excited about. And um, and then in very shortly, um, 80 Days Around the World, David Tennant is Phileas Fogg is coming out. Um, and um, I'm in that. And, um, and then I can't tell you about the other stuff yet. That's that's normal operating procedure. Well, listen, Victoria, it's been wonderful yeah. having you on. I appreciate you taking the time and, you know, 
the listeners are going to love hearing you and hearing about your exploits in the TV and the movies and theater and so on. So thank you once again and best of luck with all your future projects. And so nice to meet you and go and get some sun in Alicante and put it in an envelope and send it to London and Dublin and Galway. Share the love. Share the love <laughs> and share the sun. Thank you, Victoria. Take care, darling. All the best. Okay, thank you very much, Victoria. Really enjoyed that conversation. It was great to hear about your exploits in movies and TV. And we look forward to seeing future releases and to seeing you in this new movie, Deadly Cuts, which should be very interesting. Keep up the good work and we hopefully will talk with you again sometime soon. Thank you very much. Okay, we hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. And as usual, if you'd like to listen to previous podcasts from season one, uh, they're available on the player and all good podcast players. And until the next time, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Simon Kay. I've been your host. This is the Collective Whisper podcast. Look after yourself, look after everybody else, and take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.